Today on Save As, it's not only like letting you know what it's ahead of you, but also a way to change the nature, to reshape the nature, to reshape someone's feng shui. Welcome to Save As Next Gen Heritage Conservation, an award-winning podcast that glimpses the future of the field through the work of graduate students at the University of Southern California. I'm Cindy Alnick. And I'm Trudy Sandmeyer. So, Cindy. Yes, Trudy? Big news. We now have a new feed on Instagram and Twitter, which is Save As Next Gen. We hope to see you all there. Yes, please. That is one word at Save As Next Gen. Please follow us, connect with us, let us know what you think. So on today's episode, our producer, Willa Seidenberg, interviewed one of our recent grads, Howen Yu, about his thesis topic, which is about feng shui. And I have to say, when he first proposed this as a thesis topic, I was super excited because it blends this concept of tangible heritage and intangible heritage. Can you think about any building in China without thinking about feng shui? Because it's been a cultural practice for such a long time in China that it affects every single aspect of the built environment. Where you put a building, how you site a building, is it about more than just a building? It's about entire places and communities and where a neighborhood is located or a city or a village. So for people who are practicing conservation in China, it seems like it's an essential thing that you have to think about. Yeah. And there's this modern idea, especially in America, of what feng shui is that has to do with arranging spaces. But it is so much more complex than that. It's nearly 2000 years old. And it has evolved in so many different ways for many different reasons. So Howen's thesis really takes this to the next level looking at it through the lens of heritage conservation. So, you know, I love talking about Los Angeles, but it is so great to get not just out of our own backyard, out of town, but to get global and really start talking about how conservation is done around the world. Let's hear from Howen and Willa. Welcome to Save As, Howen. We're really happy to have you joining us. And I think you are the first international guest that we've interviewed on Save As. Howen is joining us from Chongqing, China. Welcome, Howen. Thank you very much, Willa. I'm very happy to be here. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the field of heritage conservation. Well, I studied urban planning in undergraduate uh, in Michigan, and I worked as an architect after I graduated from undergrad, I started having interest in historic buildings and how different culture and different societies, different kind of government, having different perspectives on them and different ways to preserve or conserve them. Since I'm always a fan of history and historic places, so I I think this is a good program for me and for my career plans. The name of your thesis is Examining Feng Shui as Tangible and Intangible Cultural Heritage. Why did you decide to write about feng shui for your thesis? We always find a separation between material and immaterial heritage. So 
material heritage we are more familiar with, but intangible cultural heritage, which is a, a slightly newer concept, refers to this um, cultural traditions, lifestyles, and um, sometimes even rituals that contains heritage value. Feng Shui has always been phenomenal in China, sometimes represents a, a difficult history uh, where Chinese are being colonized and attacked by Western countries. And Feng Shui, unfortunately, represents part of that history. Now it's getting back its uh, popularity in the society again. So how does the same from like popular in ancient China to not popular to something that was banned uh, in recent history and then gain its popularity again. I think this kind of transition and as a heritage represents uh, its special past. And that's why I'm interested in this topic at first place. That's really interesting how it has ebbed and flowed over time. Let's get to Feng Shui and what it really is. The words are translated as wind and water. Can you briefly describe what is the practice or the essence of Feng Shui? Well, from my perspective, Feng Shui represents two things. The first thing is an idea or a recognition that environment has a strong impact on the well-being or the luck of a person. And the second thing is Feng Shui is more represents today that a way of knowing and altering the nature, the environment to control or to improve one's luck or health or well-being. So the more universal term for this kind of thing is geomancy. It's defined as the art of arranging sites or buildings so that they're placed in a location that will bring success. And it seems to me that a lot of different indigenous cultures around the world use that concept in how they build their environments. But is there a way that feng shui is different in China? So when I did research about what you said, geomancy, I find out similar kind of geomancy, or we call um, land divination, exists um, in many different cultures. In East Asia, it might be feng shui. In India, it has a different name. In Islamic world, it has a, another different name. But I think the unique thing about feng shui is that it's not only a divination. It's not only like letting you know what's ahead of you, but also a way to change the nature, to reshape the nature, to reshape someone's feng shui, to get the result that we, we want. There's one term that you use in your thesis that's really important to the practice of feng shui. It's the term qi. Can you explain what that means? Qi basically means air or means uh, wind, but philosophers and uh, Chinese historians usually translate it into a more broader perspective, into uh, something like a vital power. So basically, qi represents the vital power that was contained by the environment. That's fundamentally why feng shui works on human, because there's qi 
embedded in every element of uh, the environment. And by carefully arranging them or planning them, um, you can get good chi and then brings you power, brings you health, brings you luck and all that. And there are other important concepts, what, what I call it a chi induction effect that basically means because everything in the world contains certain kinds of chi and all that chi is from a similar origin. So they have effects between each other. That's why feng shui practitioners believe that even you and your parents might be uh, different individuals, but when chi benefits the remains of your parents or grandparents, that still benefits you because all the chi embedded in you, your parents, the environment are all connected. I think that it was so interesting that you wrote the tomb, uh, which is, you know, where an ancestor is buried, really determines the destiny of the family through the ages. Yep. I think that is such a wonderful image and thought that we are so connected to the people who came before us in this way. And you largely write that this was a rural practice for many years that got brought to the cities through time. Can you talk a little bit about that progression? So historic China, feng shui was mostly practiced um, in rural area because most places are rural area in China. But after the industrialization and urbanization, many fundamental concepts of feng shui are reshaped by the change of lifestyle. Today, most people in China or in the world lives in concrete buildings and high-rises. But in ancient time, feng shui was a method that was invented for a, a lifestyle that you live in a village, a, a wood house uh, that is only one or two floors high. And you only have one door. Instead of today, you might have one door for human and one garage door for cars and one door for balcony or backyards. So it's not a static practice. It is evolving over time as as things go along. And it's not just a spiritual practice. I mean, there are physical objects that are actually used. Could you talk about what some of those are? So the most important tool is a feng shui compass. And the biggest use of the compass was by feng shui practitioners to determine the feng shui of a place. Because the theory of feng shui was developed throughout time and many, many other concepts and um, ideas was added to the theory of feng shui. So it added more materials on the compass so that it's not only a needle that points to the south or point to the north, but a lot of different rings surrounding the needle that tells the user which direction, at what time, and for what kind of person are the best for this place or for this person. Is it based on the environment more, or is it the environment and the personality of the person that they're deciding where things should be located? So this is another interesting part of the feng shui discourse today. 
because feng shui has uh, has evolving for so many years, it gradually developed into different schools. So one school may focus more only the nature and the, the physical environment, and some other school may vary throughout time and for different people. So this place may have a good feng shui for you, but not for me. But this place may have good feng shui for you this year, but may have a bad feng shui for you next year. Today, I think the more popular one is the later one. So the one that is more specific to a person or a time and contains more details in the calculation. Okay, so let's go from individualized to a bigger topic, which is that China went through a really dramatic political and cultural change during the 20th century. How did that affect the way people thought about feng shui? When the, the Western influence or the West uh, colonists first come into China and they start bringing Western civilizations, Western technologies, that includes utility poles, and churches. So uh, one way that they refuse those things is by using the name of feng shui, says maybe the, ch- the cross of the church and the utility poles had damaged the feng shui of a place that we may bring them bad luck. Communist government, they want a China with advancement in technologies. You write that feng shui was considered part of China's feudal tradition, it basically represented a past before industrialization, and some people even thought of it as superstition. And all that ran counter to modernization. Yes. Because China is now a world power, is there sort of a loosening in the way the government thinks about practices like feng shui? So the anti-fatalism was one of the core ideology in government's government. And because that part of the history, feng shui was put in the category of fatal tradition and the category of uh, non-science. So then was attacked and banned by the government because government wanted to promote something more scientific. Um, after the 1970s and 80s, where the Cultural Revolution ends, many things that was once assumed as fatal tradition, all kinds of religious practice, was the ban was released. And nowadays, because feng shui was, is seen as um, some kind of cultural heritage, so that brings tolerance to the existing of feng shui in China. When did feng shui first start to appear in the United States? The first appearance of feng shui might be in uh, the Asian communities uh, where they were brought to the States as a labor or as some other kind of service providers. But the popularity of feng shui in the main society or the name of feng shui was known by more people was, I think, in the 20th century. People start to realize how Asian communities and um, Asian special businessmen are rely or trust feng shui. And then this kind of cultural phenomena has spread out into different communities. And another very important point, the influence of the new cultural movement. 
the new cultural movement was firstly taken place in in West World um, in the 1970s, where people start to do some kind of cross-culture reference on the spiritual world. If we collect ancient thoughts and ideas from China and India and Egypt and Greece and many other places in the world, and we combine them together, we might find out a good way have some kind of spiritual practices. That's actually one of the source of uh, many um, diverse cultural phenomena that is popular today. Uh, Feng Shui is one of them. Yoga might be one of them. Rave invented in a way that many of its Chinese-specific concept was replaced a more universal kind of tools. So I think what you're saying is that Given that the United States is such a melting pot, we have so many different people here. And I would say, given the fact that we are now much more of a global society, that we have been influenced by some of these practices in countries like China and India, as you point out, and we sort of take them and meld them and make them a little bit more useful to our situation here in the United States. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's why I connect Feng Shui with the new cultural movement. And the new cultural movement that you're speaking about, I think we might know it better as the new age movement. Of course, yeah. I love this part in your thesis where you talked about a former president and how he decided to use feng shui in one of his buildings. Yeah. So back when President Trump uh, was still a a real estate developer, when he built Trump Tower, and he uh, expected that China in the future would be one of the biggest clients of his real estate business. So he actually consulted some kind of uh, feng shui master or who give the recommendations on how the layout and plans and interior designs of Trump Tower so that it doesn't have some kind of unknown taboo in feng shui that would lose potential uh, clients. So have there been any cases where perhaps Chinese business people said no to a building because they didn't like the feng shui? There's a one famous story in Hong Kong that when modernism architect I.M. Pei building the Bank of China Tower in Hong Kong, um, the shape of the tower, because it's a modernism architect, it's skyscraper, it has a lot of edges and mirrors in the facade of the building. That traditionally Hong Kong was seen as a bad feng shui. The buildings that is immediately next to the Bank of China Tower has started to uh, make their own adjustment in feng shui towards the Bank of China Tower so that the, the bad feng shui would be canceled. If you went into a feng shui store, what kind of things would you see? Maybe besides a compass, as you talked about uh, before, but what, what kinds of objects would you see in a store? There's two kinds of objects you would see in a feng shui store. Uh, feng shui compass was one of them. And there's a uh, shape of animals that was having specific meanings in Chinese history. 
there's ancient Chinese coins that also have specific meanings in Chinese history. After feng shui gets internationally aware, um, many of those objects has uh, changed uh, its appearance. So maybe today you walk into a feng shui store, the tools you see more would be crystals, crystal balls. So interesting, another example of how feng shui adapts and morphs as time goes on and depending on where it's being practiced. Yeah. So let's look at some of the conclusions that you make in your thesis. You explore the notion of officially recognizing feng shui as cultural heritage. UNESCO, which is the International Heritage Organization, UNESCO lists other forms of heritage like acupuncture, uh, which contain both tangible and intangible elements. What do you think about feng shui in this context? Well, when I write the last part of my thesis, where I talked about the relationship between feng shui and other intangible cultural heritage and the concept of intangible cultural heritage itself, I actually start with a question or a problem I concern with when we try to put feng shui into one of the categories of heritage, either it's tangible cultural heritage or intangible cultural heritage. But I think categorization of intangible cultural heritage, whether it's UNESCO or in China, did not completely or comprehensively reflect the whole thing, the whole feng shui as an ideology, as a uh, a way we see nature. Of course, if you ask me, do I support to enlist feng shui as an intangible cultural heritage? I would say yes, but I think there's some limitation comes to that. The separation of material and immaterial heritage was invented based on a, a, a very technical background. But feng shui is both tangible and intangible. So I think when we try to fit it into the, the category of intangible cultural heritage, it's losing its complexity. I'm not really sure by enlisting it is a comprehensive way to conserve it, or a better way is to just leave it as it is. So because of its complexity in being both tangible and intangible, it makes it hard to identify it as one thing or the other? Partly, yes. Feng shui itself has a, such a complex history. It doesn't really fit the official discourse of the identity of China. So uh, it's like uh, something that is half good and half bad. If the government decides to conserve it, it might only want to conserve the good part of it, but choose to ignore the rest of them. So that's what I worry about the most in conserving feng shui as an intangible or intangible heritage. Do you think the fact that it is moving to other cultures, that that in a certain way protects it as a heritage practice, or do you think that it dilutes it? I think it absolutely conserves it. Because, well, there are um, conflicts uh, within the feng shui community that 
It's between the fundamentalist and between the, uh, I would say, survivalist um, of feng shui practitioners. The fundamentalist, they insist that only the traditional feng shui or the feng shui on the, in the feng shui classics should be the real feng shui. That's where feng shui was reinvented or diluted in other cultures, let's see, in the States or in Europe and translated back into China was not real feng shui anymore. But I think that's an interesting part of heritage and how heritage survives to being done. And another interesting thing is that because how we define cultural heritage, especially intangible cultural heritage, that is something we really focus on its authenticity of the heritage. That is, what's the, the real practice? What's the real ritual? What's the, the most authentic practice of, uh, of the heritage? That's part of the reason, I think, why certain countries, especially countries like United States, Australia, New Zealand, um, those immigration countries that was not fully support the idea of intangible cultural heritage. But if we look at the history of how it's, how feng shui survived and transformed throughout different cultures, I think that's a way that many different countries and cultures can show together they make a heritage what it is today. And that's how they have their part of in the heritage. So, Hawin, I just want to wrap up with asking you what you're doing now and what's next for you. Currently, I'm working for a state-owned design institute to do some research on community planning, which is a new thing in China. But now I want to have more community engagement and involvement in the planning and design process, even if it's still uh, mostly controlled and managed by the government. But I, I still want to uh, give more um, power to the communities. That's great. Well, congratulations. That sounds like a great position to have and a really good place to land after all your studies in the United States. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you, Willa. Thank you, Willa, and thank you, Hawen, for this really compelling conversation about a complex topic. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. If you'd like to learn more about this and read Howen's thesis, which goes into great detail about all this, you should visit our episode page at saveas.place. I would actually recommend for listeners who would like more context on this, because we can't get nearly as deep in this episode as we would like. If you'd like more, you might want to read the book that um, Trudy co-edited a few years ago with fellow faculty member Vinayak Barney. It's called The Routledge Companion to Global Heritage Conservation. And we will link to that in our um, show notes on our episode page at saveas.place. Also, don't forget to follow us on our new Instagram and Twitter feeds at saveasnextgen, all one word. This episode was produced by Willa Seidenberg with help from Cindy and me. Emily Kwok is our intern and doing a fantastic job on social media. Our theme music is by Stephen Conley. Save As is a production of the Heritage Conservation Program in the School of Architecture at the University of Southern California.